Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Today on the podcast, we have part 24 of our series, Letters from Prison. We're nearing the end of our study on Philippians. Today's message is entitled, Participants in Generous Life. We're going to be looking at what grace looks like in the life of a church. Good stuff. I, I, I hope you will enjoy it and get a lot out of it. Just a reminder, also this week we're going to be having a worship night on Wednesday, 7 o'clock, downtown Covington. It's part of a week of prayer and fasting we are doing as a church to uh, seek God's direction in several areas. And don't forget that we also have devotionals on Philippians that we just kicked off yesterday, uh, or last week, on the website. So check those out Monday through Friday under devotionals at northshorevineyard.org. Hey, thanks for listening, and uh, let's head over to North Shore Vineyard, downtown Covington. Letters from prison are looking to the book of Philippians, and, and I'm sad to say this might be our last message on Philippians after eight months. Uh, I'm kind of sad. Actually, it won't be our last message technically because next week I'm going to do kind of a recap. And so if you have been with us for any part of this journey through Philippians, uh, I would like your comments on how you have felt challenged by God in the midst of it, uh, maybe how you maybe have experienced some freedom in your own personal walk, uh, whatever has stood out to you, and I'd like to share some of those comments next weekend. So you can either um, drop some comments in the offering, or if you want to email me, crispin at northshorevineyard.org, uh, you can do that uh, with your comments. Or if you're on our church email list, uh, you got an email last week, and if this is news to you, that means you probably didn't read your email. So you can respond to that email when you get home, and uh, give me some of your comments. I'd just like to know how you're doing on that. Um, so I want to start off by sharing a quote from a famous modern philosopher in an interview a few years ago. He said this, I really believe we've moved out of the realm of karma into one of grace. If you're not familiar with the term karma, it's that, uh, you know, what goes around comes around. If you do good stuff, good stuff comes back to you. Bad stuff, bad stuff comes back to you. Okay? I really believe we've moved out of the realm of karma into one of grace. You see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Or in physics... In physical laws, every action is met by an equal or an opposite one. It is clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, along comes this idea called grace, to upend all that as you reap, so you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to ha be my final judge. I'd be in deep doo-doo. 
Had to editorialize a little bit here. Uh, it doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am, and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. That's good stuff, huh? You know what modern philosopher said that? Bono. Bono from the rock band U2. It'd be, wouldn't it be cool if we had more rock stars that thought along those lines? <laughs> I love that quote, and, and I actually, if you were here back in January when we started the look into the book of Philippians, we, we kind of shared that quote back then, um, and it's probably news to y'all because you've already forgot it since then, which, which probably means I can start recycling my messages about now from six months ago. Um, but I wanted to start today by talking about grace, because Paul starts off his letter with grace and peace. He starts it off with grace, but we've seen in the last several months as we've looked at this that grace is woven throughout the text of Philippians. And now today we come to a place where grace is not just some abstract theological concept. Now we get to see what it looks like in the life of the church between the relationship between Paul and the church and God and this flow of grace and generosity moving back and forth. What we see today is what a love that, that, that moves outside of karma, a grace that lo- moves outside of the law and karma looks like. And what does it look like? It looks like Jesus. If you want to know what love, the love of God looks like, we, we need look no further than the person of Jesus Christ himself. And we can see in the teachings of Jesus, we bump into his love there. We bump into this love that, that goes way beyond you reap what you sow, way beyond just meeting the requirements of the law. Where do we find it in the teachings of Jesus? Well, Jesus, one time he said, you've heard it said in the law, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Love the, the people who are good to you and, and hate those who are, are your enemies. But Jesus said, I say, love your enemies Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who who use you. Crazy talk, Jesus. Jesus is is taking what what is required by the law and he's just blowing it up and saying, no, don't just love the people who are good to you. Love everybody. Love those who are mean to you, who use you. Wow, that's crazy. One of Jesus' disciples asked him one time, he said, how many times do we need to forgive somebody who wrongs us? Like seven Seven times? I mean, dude, somebody does me wrong seven times and I extend them forgiveness? Dude, that's, that's merciful. <laughs> that's amazing compassion. And Jesus says, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Wow. Jesus is taking our, our limited understanding of forgiveness. And, and understand, Jesus wasn't giving us an arbitrary number to, okay, I, I forgave you at 140. For, yeah, that many times. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. You're, you're off of my friend list now. No, Jesus is making the point that our, our forgiveness needs to be unlimited. Why? Because God's forgiveness is unlimited. We bump into the love of Jesus in his very actions, in his life. You know, Jesus had this reputation I mean, he had a reputation. People talked about it. They called him a drunk and a, and, a, and, and a glutton because he was always hanging out at parties. And these weren't parties with, like, religious folk. 
These were parties with sinners and outcasts and, and folks that thought they, you know, that didn't have a religious bone in their body. They, they thought that they were excluded from the old covenant altogether. They, 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 they didn't know how to quote Bible verses. They hadn't been to seminary. They didn't hang out with Pharisees and scribes. And Jesus goes to their parties. And what's he do? He says, the kingdom of God is near you. You realize how revolutionary that is? Jesus is saying, look, look, there's something bigger than religion. And it's right here in front of you. It doesn't matter if you don't know the Bible. You don't know how to pray. If you feel like you're on the outskirts, guess what? The kingdom of God is near you. We see this in how Jesus touches the untouchables. You know, under the old covenant law, you couldn't touch a leper. Lepers were unclean. They, they were excluded. They had their own leper colonies because if you touched one of them, you'd be considered unclean. Did that get in Jesus's way? No. He walks right up and embraces the lepers. He heals them. Jesus actually got in, in, in quite a bit of trouble because he didn't just heal people. He healed them on the Sabbath. Now, that may not sound that crazy to you in this day, but back in first century Palestine, that was a big deal. Dude, you're, you're breaking the Sabbath by doing work on it. You're, you're healing. Are you crazy? Yeah, Jesus was crazy. He was showing them something that was bigger than the law, something that was greater and wider and, and more expansive. We see this in the very cross of Christ. See, in the cross of Christ, We see all the things that Jesus had been talking about all those years. We see it exemplified when Jesus hanging there on the cross extends forgiveness to the very ones who crucified him. Father, forgive them for they don't even they don't even know what they're doing. They don't get it. God, extend them forgiveness. Are you crazy? What? On the cross, like you're you're bleeding, you're tortured, you're 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 last. You could say a lot of things at the last part, like God smite him, you know, Beat him down. They deserve to die. And Jesus, with his dying breath, says, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Jesus didn't just extend forgiveness seven times. He extended it in an unlimited way. He loved his enemies. He laid down his life for his friends. He exemplified everything that he'd been speaking because it was in him the whole time. It's who he was. The word that transcends the story. See, what Jesus shows us in love and his relationship is he, he invites us into something that's bigger than transactional kind of religion. Transactional religion is, is, is the basic stuff of, of most world religions. You do this, you get this. You don't, you don't do this, you get cursed. You do this, you get blessed. And, and that, that's the world. And Jesus elevates it to something that had been existing before our story ever got started. See, there's this, this doctrine within the church that has existed for, you know, since the first couple of hundred years of the church called the Trinity. You ever heard of the Trinity before? Right? Some people? Okay, well, here it is. Here's what the Trinity is. The Trinity is this, this concept that, that they came up with just to describe what we see going on throughout the Gospels. In the Gospels, you see that, that Jesus isn't just doing ministry by himself. When he's baptized in the River Jordan on, before he goes into ministry, the Holy Spirit descends upon him. We see Jesus saying things like, the Son only does what he sees the Father doing. And then he says things like, 
I'm the vine. My father is the vine dresser. We see that Jesus is talking to his heavenly father on the night in Gethsemane before he goes to the cross. Father, take this cup from me. But then we see Jesus also talking about the Holy Spirit. It's good that I leave you now because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, the comforter. He's going to guide you in all truth. We see this interplay, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all throughout the Gospels. We see it in the writings of Paul. And the truth is that the Trinity, before there was ever a universe, before there was ever people or a creation or anything that we see now, God existed in divine, loving, relational community. And, and we were created in His image. And that's why I, I feel like when, when we get reconciled to God and God begins putting us back together, we learn how to truly exemplify the image of God the way we should. We start learning how to connect relationally with God and with other people. He brings us back into harmony with Him. So... There's a transactional understanding of religion, but then there's a Trinitarian one. And that's what Jesus is inviting us into. He's inviting us to be a part of this relationship that has existed between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that he showed on planet Earth that goes way above and beyond the law and karma and the customs of this world. And that's his invitation. And that understanding is at the core of Paul's ideas, of, of his writings, of his theology. Which finally brings me to the text for today. Philippians 4, 19, 14 through 19. The Apostle Paul is, is in a prison in Rome. He's writing to his church in Philippi. He says, Yet it was good for you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with me, with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia... Not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. You know, I have to say that, has anybody heard the, the last verse there before? My God shall supply all your need according to his riches. That's one of the famous verses from the New Testament. If you've been in church long, or even if you've been out of church, you may have heard that one before, right? And, and how do we typically view this verse? It's one of those verses that you want to pray when you're, you know, you're having job trouble, right? My God shall supply all my need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, right? And you claim it and, and you believe it. And, and the only problem is we, when we divorce it from the text and make it all about me and my need, we're missing the whole point of what the scripture is about. And this scripture, the, these verses are calling us not to, to focus on our need, but to, to be invited to participate in the richness, and the flow of grace and generosity that existing in the Trinity and God and, and Paul. And that's what it's about. And I'm going to get into that here in a, in a moment. First off, I want to look at a couple of things that, that Paul mentions here. He, he talks about a special relationship with the Philippian church. I always want to call it the Philippine church, uh, the, the Philippian church. You know, the, the, 
the church of Philippi was the first church that Paul ever planted. So it was, it was a special thing to him. If you can look in Acts chapter 16, and, and there was a, a group of women that, that were meeting to, to pray, down by the river to pray, studying about that old way. Sorry, reference to a brother Rata. Uh, but they were down, down by the river outside of Philippi, and, and Paul comes along, he sees them, and he introduces them to Jesus. He, he shares the gospel, they respond, and so he starts a church, like in a house, with, with Lydia and a few other folks from uh, Philippi. And th- that was the foundation of it. So Paul has had a longer relationship with this church than any other church he's planted. But what we also see in these verses is that the church in Philippi, they had his back. They supported him when nobody else did. In fact, I found that, you know, when I was studying for this this past week, I, I was surprised to see that the only church we know of that supported Paul financially that, that we have record of in the New Testament is the church of Philippi. We don't have record of Corinth or Ephesus or any of those other churches giving to Paul. Only, that doesn't mean that they never did, but the only one that, that we have record of is Philippi. 2 Corinthians 11, 8 through 9, Paul writes this to the church of Corinth. He says, I I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia, that's Philippi, that's where Philippi is, supplied what I needed. I've kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. So Paul, all Paul was doing in Corinth, planning the church, pastoring them, teaching them about God, he didn't receive a dime from it. He never passed the hat or the offering basket. Why? Because Philippi was supporting him. They had partnered with him to to see that this other place would get in on the grace of God. We can read in 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 through 10. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica. He says, For you yourselves know... How you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. And we did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model to you for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. So Paul, even when he was in Thessalonica, sound like a surfer, Thessalonica. (laughs) These are some tough words. When he was there, (laughs) he didn't he didn't receive anything from them. He didn't ask for anything. And, 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 And a matter of fact. He made a point not to receive anything. Anytime I ate food in anybody's house, I paid for them. I, I paid for my own shelter and, and my own housing. But what do we see in, in, in Philippians 4.16? We see a reference to this. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. So what do we see here? We see that the Philippians, their generosity, it wasn't just local. They weren't just taking care of their own church. Their generosity, their experience of God, His grace, His generosity, it moved way beyond Philippi. It moved to Corinth. It moved to uh, Thessalonica. It even supported Paul when Paul wasn't doing anything. He was in prison. That's pretty amazing. Paul writes in verse 17 
of Philippians 4, he says, Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Now, let's look at these terms, fragrant offering and acceptable sacrifice. What, what is that the language of? That's the language of the temple. Now, little theological question here. We can call it rhetorical too. So, uh, <laughs> what, What's the only sacrifice that is pleasing to God? Jesus is the answer. Okay, Jesus. <laughs> if you look at the book of Hebrews, Jesus is the only sacrifice that's pleasing to God. So uh, what Paul is getting at here is that they are beginning to participate in the very sacrifice. The, the very generosity and grace that God has extended, they're joining alongside that. They are beginning to be a pleasing sacrifice before God. They're joining in the very ministry of Jesus. That's pretty hot. Temple language. But Paul's joy, as he says here, it's not that, that they gave him a gift. I'm sure Paul is glad to eat some food in prison. That's nice. Paul's joy is what the gift actually indicates about them. See, I love Paul. If you read his writings, I mean, dude, it's a, it's a whole different world than what we see in ministry nowadays. Most of the churches that Paul was at, I mean, you, you can't ever see Paul asking for money, begging for money, guilting, manipulate people. You, you don't see that. It's absent. But when Paul sees them giving, he, he doesn't say, oh, you're finally, you're finally doing what God wants you to. No, he sees it as the fruit of the grace of God changing them on the inside. He sees it as the evidence that God is doing something in their midst. So regular religion, karma and stuff is like, you give this and you're going to be blessed. You're going to, get, you know, Paul never does that. But when Paul sees him giving, he says, wow, this is cool. You're starting to, God's starting to do something in your life. That's the evidence. It's like looking at a fruit tree that has fruit on it. You would assume that that's a healthy tree, right? If you look at a fruit tree, the fruit tree that doesn't have fruit on it, something's wrong, right? Fruit trees were made to create fruit. Same way, this generosity, they're opening up their hands and supporting him when no other church does, even though we, we have no indication that he's ever asked for it. He's never guilted them into it. It's the indication that God's grace is transforming their hearts. They are beginning to move outside of the realm of karma. They're beginning to move outside the, the realm of their customs and the world that they live in. They're, they're moving outside of conventional wisdom, and they're moving up into that realm where Jesus is. It's giving, receiving, participating in the relationship with God. You know, in my own marriage, uh, Dina's here. Okay, I better be careful now. <laughs> It's my wife, Dina, uh, for, for those of y'all that don't know. Um, in our marriage, I can tell that things need a little bit of a tweaking when either one of us begin to have a transactional view of our relationship. What does that mean? I did the dishes. You, you, need, to, you need to mow the lawn. I, I cleaned the house. You need to do this. I did this, and you, did, you, you need to do that. You ever get in that? I mean, we all do, right? 
and you start getting resentful, right? You, you say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the only one who's working in this marriage, blah, 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 you know? And uh, I mean, I've heard that people do that. I, <laughs> I, I saw that on an episode of Everybody Loves Raymond. Um, but the truth is, what I've noticed in our marriage, when we begin to focus on our relationship with one another, when we're setting time aside to be together, when we're valuing one another, respecting one another, caring for one another, guess what? You don't even think twice about doing the dishes. You don't think twice about cleaning the house or mowing the yard or, or doing any of the chores around there. It's, you're not keeping score because it's getting caught up in the flow of love and giving and grace, just like we see in the Trinity, just like we see in the ministry of Jesus. You're moving from a transactional reality to a higher reality. I want to read something to you and, 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 and t- tell me if you can uh, name what genre of literature this is, okay? This, this ought to be, it's kind of hard, so hopefully you can track with me. Ready? Neither we nor any third parties provide any warranties or guarantees as to the accuracy, timeliness, performance, completeness, or suitability of the information and materials found or offered in this website for any particular purpose. You acknowledge that such information and materials may contain inaccuracies or errors, and we expressly exclude liability for any such inaccuracies or errors to the fullest extent of the permitted by law. Your use of any information or materials of this website is entirely at your own risk for which we shall not be liable. It shall be your own responsibility to ensure that any product, services, information available through this website meets your specific requirements. This website contains... What, what is that the language of? Law, law right. It's, 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 the term, it's like the terms and conditions that you have to click agree on and you, you, you kind of, your eyes glaze over after about two paragraphs on that, that new terms and conditions for iTunes that they come out with every two weeks for the 99th version of iTunes that they came out with this month. But that's, you're, you're not going to confuse that stuff with poetry, are you? Right? It was it was pretty obvious within about six words that oh this is this is the legal stuff I get it well if you were reading Paul's letter to the Philippian church in Greek at that time you would have picked up on the language of what Paul was using in these verses Paul is actually using the language of business and commerce at this point. Paul is actually addressing a custom that was common in the Greco-Roman world at that time. Back at that time, if, say, Dan gave me a gift, the custom was that I was obligated now to reciprocate by giving him a gift. But the gift that I had to give him had to be a little bit better than the gift he gave me. But when I gave Dan that gift, it put him at an obligation to give me a gift that was a little bit better than my gift. And you could see how this thing would go back and forth. Now, I know our modern-day world isn't anything like that, right? Unless you have kids that go to birthday parties. You know, when, I, when Tevia, our, our daughter, was, was first born, we, we were the first people with any kids. That I mean, we only had one, but like all of our friends, none of them had kids. And so her first couple of birthday parties, it was all adults. And uh, that was cool. But then we moved to Kenner, and all of a sudden she got a bunch of friends. And that was cool because she had a birthday party, and she actually had friends there. Actually, some of your kids. And uh, that was really great. But then 
we stumbled upon a reality that if you have all these people that come to your birthday party, you're going to get invitations to their birthday parties. And that was cool for a couple of years. But then, then Ezra comes along. And I, I can only imagine how it is if you've got four or five kids. We only had two kids, but there are certain times in our year where we'll have a, a whole month where every weekend there's two or three birthday parties. And you feel obligated to, to go. You, it becomes like a burden, like, oh, I've got to go to a birthday party. I mean, the kids are cool with it, but, but you're starting to think, man, this is affecting my... I, like, I don't have enough money set aside to buy six gifts every three weeks for all these birthday parties. I mean, if any of your kids that Tevias went to... We didn't feel obligated. We, you know... <laughs> But, but, the, but we could take it out of that realm and just look at Christmas. Do you ever feel obligated to give people gifts at Christmas sometimes? <laughs> okay, some of you don't. No, no I'm free. <laughs> well, sometimes, sometimes we, we can feel obligated, like, oh, I've got to buy something for every one of my family members, and then some of my coworkers, then maybe my boss, maybe my pastor. <clears throat> um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all grace, brother. We've moved beyond that custom. Uh, uh, <laughs> but, but, but sometimes we get into that realm as well, where we, we, we're giving, but it's, it's, not, it's not from a, a, a place of, of, of really wanting to. We, we, we're feeling obligated. It's our custom, the world we live in. And Paul is using that exact same kind of language. He's appealing to one of their customs, and he's writing in this, this transactional commercial language right there but as paul always does he he meets them in their custom and then he takes them way beyond it paul is saying look you guys in philippi you've given me so much over the years i, I can't I'm, I, i've recounted a bit of it but you guys have been there for me when nobody else was you have consistently supported me and according to the customs of this day i'm obligated to give you what you've given me back plus some but God's going to catch my end of the bill. <laughs> God is going to supply all your needs. Actually, the way Paul reframes it, he says, what you've given to me, I consider it a gift to God. You were given to the Lord. And you know what? He's going to supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. He's got my back. He's, he's, he's paying my tab. I'm stuck here in prison. I can't do anything. I got nothing. My God will catch my end of the deal. <laughs> He's going to take care of you. See, Paul is elevating it from a transactional reality to the realm of grace. This is what grace looks like in practice. It's not just, I'm going to bless Paul's ministry so that God's going to give me a, a bigger house and, a, and, a, and, and more cars and whiter teeth and all that stuff. No, I'm beginning to participate and the life of God. And, and that's a heck of a lot better than transactional religious stuff. I'm telling you. Somebody could shout me down now. You know, if you were here last December, we, as a church, we uh, decided to give a Christmas gift. We, we took up a special offering to, to just give a gift as a church. And, and, and the, the object of our gift was a, a ministry in Zambia, Africa, kind of in the middle of Africa, called Seeds of Hope. And, and Kurt, the guy who passed, the, the, that um, started Seeds of Hope, he started it years ago. He was a vineyard pastor out in California. 
and he went over there to drill freshwater wells. There's something like a, a billion people in the world right now who don't have access to clean drinking water, and, and the, the absence of, of having clean drinking water is the number one cause for disease and death in the world. And so he, he went over there initially to, to do this. Well, they branched out, and they started actually making biosand filtration devices that, that you know, just cost a few bucks to make, but they could install them in homes, and you could have fresh water in your home for years, even if the water coming out of your faucet was bad. Well, they didn't stop there. They, they started realizing there's a cycle of poverty. Though we're taking care of some of the basic needs, there's really the AIDS epidemic over there has, has just disseminated a lot of the population. You've got so many people who are young. How can we... Break the cycle. Sean Rich, the guy who led the, uh, a team from uh, Kenner to Zambia la- a, a couple of years ago, his first time there, he met a girl who was 14 years old. Her parents had died of AIDS, and now she was the, the head of her household. She was taking care of her two younger brothers. You know what your opportunities are in Zambia, in this little town, when you're 14 years old and you're a girl? You, you know what? one of your only opportunities you can do to make money is prostitution. That was about it. That's like the future she could look forward to is she could take care of her brothers, but it would mean that she was going to get AIDS and she was going to die just like her parents. Seeds of Hope stepped in to start breaking the cycle of poverty. So how did they do this? Well, they, they start doing uh, job training classes, skills, uh, microfinance, some things that, that could help actually you know, equip somebody who's 14 years old to, to where they could actually have some skills outside of that so they wouldn't have to sell themselves into prostitution so they could find a way out of the system. So I called Seeds of Hope up. I said, hey, look, we're, as a church, we want to give a Christmas gift to somebody. We heard about what you guys are doing. Can, can we, how can we help? They said, well, look, you know, our biggest need right now, we need a, another building. And, and this building will, will be a, a, a place where we can set up computers, do computer classes. We can do job training, water testing, and AIDS testing there. And, and that, that's a huge deal, uh, deal for us right now. We, we need some space. I said, okay, great. Well, how much does it cost? He said, $6,000. For a whole building? Yeah. I said, okay, we'll do it. Now, I was kind of hoping that, that we could do it. I, I hadn't presented the idea to everyone here. But I was like, yes, we're in. We want to help out with this. And so last December, we took up an offering. You know how much money came in? $6,400. We were able to completely pay for this building. You know what's even cooler? Uh, there was a team that went to Zambia two weeks ago, and I got a, a, an email from Sean. He said, dude, I just saw the building. I went inside. I think they actually helped paint it and everything. He said, it, it looks amazing. He's like, it's, it's so cool what, what y'all guys were able to partner in. So I want to show you some pictures. This is it. They've, they've got a cool construction technique here too, using a, a container. That's kind of the outside. They're repainting it. The actual computers, sewing machine and they, that, that's one of the ways actually sewing, uh, teaching these young girls to sew. That's a way out of poverty. It's a job, a skill that if you just provide some s- very little money, a little bit of training, something that they can do. You know, when I see what this church was able to do, I mean, dude, last December, just so you know, like $6,000, let's put that in perspective of our church. That's like 
three quarters of our monthly running budget. We met our entire budget for that month and then some. And then you guys gave $6,400 on top of that. This little church in a little town, middle Louisiana, has built a building all across the world. You know what that is? You know what that is? That, that's participating in the grace of God. We're getting in the flow of what God's doing. This, this, these people in Zambia, you're never going to see them probably. You're never going to probably meet any of these people. They haven't done anything good for you. There, there's no benefit in it at all for you. The only benefit is it's just the goodness of God. It's just what God's up to. We're just joining what God's doing. And you know what? When we do that, we don't have to worry about anything else. It's just kind of like what, what Jesus said. Seek first the kingdom of God. Don't worry about your house or your food or what kind of clothes you're going to wear. Don't worry about that stuff. Just keep seeking God first. I'm going to take care of that. I got your back. Isn't that a better way to live? I tell you, for, for years, I lived a transactional religious Christianity. For years, I lived under this, this kind of Christianity. This, if you want to get blessed, you just got to give more. You got you to give more. Or if, if you don't want to be cursed, then you just got to give more. <laughs> or you got to do this. You got to read your Bible this amount of times, or, or, or God's not going to be happy with you. Or you, you got to serve at the church or do this. And, and I lived that for so many years. And it's a burden, man. You, you just never know. Did I do enough to get God happy with me? But you know what? I came to the understanding at one point. In Jesus, God's as happy with me as he's ever going to be. You can't get more happy with me than, than, than Jesus. I'm as blessed in Jesus as I'm ever going to be. That's it. I mean, anything I get on top of being accepted by Jesus and, and into God's kingdom is just lanyap. I mean, if, if, if I get any other blessings on top of that, I'm, I'm a happy camper. I'm not living for that extra stuff, though, because I got the, the main thing. You are as accepted in Christ as you're ever going to be. And there's no amount of goodness or reading your Bible or praying or giving to this church or anything that's, that's going to improve your status. You are blessed completely, utterly. When we give, we're just joining with what Jesus has already done. We're just joining his sacrifice, his generosity. His, we're not adding anything to it. We're just we're partnering with it. We're just joining in the flow of what Jesus is already doing. And I got to tell you, I've lived both ways. Dude, I'll take this way any day because it's a way of freedom. It's a way of liberty. You're not all the time under that yoke of, am I doing enough? Am I impressing God? Dude, you're not. <laughs> Jesus impressed God all, all, <laughs> all you need. <laughs> so what I want to leave you with, the, the, the final words today is lose your religion. Lose it. I don't care if it's a, if it's a hipper, you know, my, my version of religion for so many years, transactional religion, it was a hipper you know, more rock and roll version, but it was transactional religion. It was doing this to get that. It was karma. Lose that. Change it in for the grace of God. You know, a lot of people, they say, you know, well, if you, if you believe in the grace of God, that's just, you know, God's just, that's just license to do whatever you want. No, dude, 
What we see in the Philippian church, when they begin to, to capture the grace of God, when that begins to touch their heart, it changes them. They open up their hands. They don't become generous to get God's favor. When they understand that they got God's favor, it, it affects them. It changes them. And that's what I can say in my own life. As I realize that I am blessed, I open up my hands, open up my life. I can be generous because Jesus is generous. Nobody has to guilt me or manipulate me or anything. Lose your stinking religion. Lose it. Like Paul said, Paul looked back on his whole, back in Philippians a few months ago when we looked at it, Paul looked at his whole life before meeting Jesus. Very religious, very law-driven, very legalistic. And he says, I consider it dung. There's actually another word that I won't use in church today. It's the equivalent. Scubalon in Greek. You can go look it up later. It, 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 it's bad stuff if I translate it into English. We're trying to keep this service PG. But Paul says, I look back on my whole life of religion and trying to make God happy. And he said, it's just dung. It's raw sewage. Stuff for the dogs to go through compared to knowing Jesus. And I can say that like Paul. Dude, knowing Jesus, that, that's better than anything. And if I, if I get anything on top of that, super cool. <laughs> I'm a happy camper. But to know Jesus and participate with what he's doing. And that's what I love about Jesus. Because a lot of people leave grace as if it's just God's ability to forgive our sin. That, that's not grace. Grace is God's invitation for us to participate in his life and love and, and what he's doing in the world. His goodness. I tell you, that's what I'm about to preach. I take that any day. When you're in a relationship with God, you say, God, what good things do you want to do through my life today? That's pretty cool. It's pretty subversive. It'll start changing your life. That's a lot better than just saying, oh, well, I, I have to do this to, to make God happy. No, forget that. Lose your religion. All right, I, I could go on, but I won't. Let's stand. Jesus, we, we are so grateful for who you are, for all you've done. We are so grateful for your invitation into this life, to this flow of, of goodness and love and mercy and grace. Lord, that you have not just forgiven of our sins, but you have called us to be forgivers. You've not just shown us your love, but you want to transform us into people who love. God, we accept your invitation this morning. We pray that your grace would have its work in our hearts, Lord. And I pray, God, that, that, the, that those who are bound to the, to the cords of, of religion, of karma, of, 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 of legalism, God, that you would break that stuff off, God, that we could begin to see that in you we're as right as we're ever going to be. We thank you that, as Bono said, we don't have to depend on our own religiosity, we just depend on the best that you can do. We depend on you, Lord. God, help us as a church to stay in that flow, in that place, to bear fruit. Lord, that the world may know your goodness, not just to us, but through us. 
We thank you so much, Lord. We thank you so much, God. Amen.